So, like I said, grace of God. Now, I wanted to touch on this for reason being that we've spent a lot of time the past few weeks or so going over a lot of things that we should do, which of course is still important. You know, there's a lot of things we, we do have to do or a lot of things we should do, but we can't get away from the grace of God because without the grace of God, we can't even do any of the doing that we're meant to do. <laughs> so it's, it's an essential, essential piece, essential uh, component here. Uh, if you guys remember, this was, it was a few teachings ago, it might've been over a month ago, um, where I mentioned that when it comes to God's ability given to us, there's actually nothing that we can do without the grace of God. There's even, even your choice to be obedient depends on whether you have the grace of God or not. So we're going to be emphasizing that idea and how the grace of God applies to the ability that we even have to do anything for God. And that should balance the scale a little bit so that you're thinking of your actions in tandem with the grace that's given to you to perform those actions. Otherwise, you get so heavy on action, which is still good, that you forget grace. And what that causes is the burden of the law, is what Paul talked about in Galatians. So you, you basically, you feel burdened, you feel weighed down, slowed down, and actually distressed if you have too much emphasis placed on your actions. If you have balance with grace, then you're able to both succeed and fail in your actions and stay stable, level-headed, and at peace because you know that God is still in control. He's still in charge, and you haven't thrown off the entire plan of God because you failed once, <laughs> right? So that's what we're going to talk about. So we'll start at the top. We're going to define grace first. So number one, grace is anything that God chooses to give to his creation. God's giving is his grace. Now, here's why I'm defining it that way. You guys have probably often heard grace defined as unmerited favor, which is still true in a sense, but unmerited favor still is a little bit limited because it doesn't really expand on everything the New Testament talks about when it refers to God's grace. So that's why I'm defining it based on the definition of the Greek word. Grace is anything that God gives not just favor, because there's a lot more included than just favor, okay? Anything that God gives. Anything and everything, yes. Everything that he gives. Now, um, everything that even makes life exist is a gift from God. The fact that you exist is a gift from God, right? So we'll get into more of that. So grace is unmerited. You can't earn it. Grace is not compensation. It is a free gift. The Greek word, or one of, excuse me, one of the definitions of the Greek word for grace, which is charis, one of the definitions is a gift, anything given. Now, if you receive a gift, that means it's not earned. You didn't work for it. You didn't merit it. It's given freely. That's what makes grace what it is. So, yes, it is unmerited. Also translated benefit or favor Grace is always given according to God's own purpose. Meaning that he gives when he decides he wants to, not when we ask for it. So the giver is always in charge of when something is given. Otherwise, it's not a gift anymore. <laughs> so if somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I'd like to give you this. You go, no, 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 you can't give it to me right now. It's not time yet. I'll come back in 10 years. Then you'll give it to me. At that point, 
it's now including your activity, your asking, your desire. That's not a gift anymore, right? The whole point about it being grace is that God decides when to give it. So it's totally on him. That's one of the reasons why you can't earn it. Because if he decides on his own resources and on his own purpose, when he wants to give to you, that's completely removed from any action that you take. So that's what makes grace a gift. It's according to his own purpose. So let's look at some scriptures for this. Go to Romans 9. This talks about mercy, which is closely connected to grace. Romans 9, 15, and 16. We'll look at all three of these real quick. Romans 9, 15, and 16. Says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So his point here is that the will portion is that God doesn't show mercy or compassion to you just because you want it. He shows it because he wants to. And that's why he says, quoting Exodus, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So it's not about your desire, nor it is about your running or your labor. It's simply of God's character. It's in his character to give, to show mercy, and to show compassion. You can't earn it, and you can't want it hard enough for him to give it to you. It's always about what he purposes. Turn the page, chapter 11 of Romans, verses 5 through 6. Chapter 11, verses 5 through 6 of Romans. It says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Now that's basically a mouthful way of saying that you can't earn something and it be given freely to you at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. Either you are given something or you work for it. You can't have both. There's a similar scripture in Romans 4 where Paul says that for the person who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Replace the words, he's saying, if you work for something, what your wage is or what you are given in return is not grace. It's not a gift. It is a debt. It's something owed to you for your labor. So like if you have any kind of job, when you work the agreed number of hours, your wages are something owed to you. It's debt being paid to you. If it's grace, then it's a gift and you didn't earn it. So in any case you're reading about grace in scripture, it is always freely given completely despite any of your actions. That's what makes it grace. And that's why Romans 11 says it really well in saying, if it is grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So you can't say you're walking in the grace of God if you believe you're earning it. Otherwise, it's not grace. It's always free. Amen. That's a really comforting thing to know. We can't earn it. And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, really common popular verse that by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Grace makes it a gift. Uh, not of works lest any man should boast. So you didn't work for it, so you can't boast about it. 
you can't accredit your labor to what God gives to you. Okay, there's our foundation. Next section, number two here. Now we're going to look at types of grace. There's more than one type of grace. A lot of believers aren't totally informed about this, so I just wanted to make sure that we cover it. Type number one is common grace. So this means the grace given to everyone, including unbelievers. We need it to survive and or enjoy anything in life. Let's look at uh, Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Or excuse me, not four, five. My bad, I read that wrong. Matthew 5, verse 44. That's what it was. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Starting there, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So when he says, do good to those who hate you, you doing good to someone who hates you would be showing grace because the person didn't earn it. You're giving them something they didn't work for. So then he says, next verse, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he, this is how God does it, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Basically, it's saying God doesn't care who you are. He's going to let you enjoy sunshine and food. Rain for your crops, right? A lot of people don't think about this, but every single day that you wake up with an earth that's still spinning around a sun that still keeps it warm and with water that still rains on the earth is the grace of God. We don't deserve that. Let alone, we don't even, God didn't have to create us. Here's the thing. So the fact that you're even created is a grace of God. Life itself is a gift. You didn't earn that either. You weren't, you, you weren't conscious. <laughs> you didn't exist. So the fact that God even gave you life is a free gift. That's his grace. So grace in that sense is shown to unbelievers too. Everyone on the planet experiences at least that level of grace. That's called common grace. One more scripture we'll look at for that is Acts 14. You can turn there. Acts 14. Sixteen. It's in the middle of a sentence. That's okay. We'll still do it. Sixteen. It's talking about God. God who created heaven, earth, the sea, and all things are in them. Sixteen. Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. And that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. With these sayings, they could not scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them, which is ironic. <laughs> okay, so here's what we're looking at. He's saying all these other nations are walking in wickedness. They're in sin. And he says, but God gave them rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filled their hearts with food and gladness anyway. The fact that People or anyone who's willfully living in sin can still, especially in this nation, 
get food pretty much anywhere they want is a grace of God. If unbelievers didn't have any of God's grace in this life, they wouldn't breathe, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't drink water. All those things that we do every day to survive and enjoy creation is a grace of God. That's called common grace. And that's the first thing we have to be super thankful for. Because we had that long before we were ever even aware of our accountability to God. So we have to start there. Just to summarize this next bullet point, the gift of life itself, air to breathe, a beating heart, music, beauty and creation, any moment of love or joy, all of these are graces of God. We didn't earn any of these things, therefore they are all the grace of God in effect. You wouldn't be able to succeed at anything, let alone survive or even exist without the grace of God. So again, we start there. Type two, this is the second type of grace. This is called saving grace. This is the grace given through Jesus Christ, allowing us to be saved. Which would mean that grace wouldn't stop in your earthly life, but it would continue in eternity. Everyone who's an unbeliever gets a lot of the grace of God while they're alive on earth. Once you die, that's when grace is over, if you're an unbeliever. And then you have to suffer all the consequences for your sin. If you're a believer... You're saved from the wrath of God and you get to continue in the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. Amen. That's saving grace. That comes through Christ. So Acts 15, 11, we'll just look at a couple verses quick. Go to Acts 15, verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So what makes you saved? is the grace that came through Jesus Christ. And look at Romans 3. Romans 3, 24 through 26. It says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The point is that your sins can be forgiven and you can be made righteous because of the grace of God that came through Christ. Again, that's saving grace. The bullet point underneath that is that God didn't have to save us. We all deserve to perish in hell. That's true universally. But he chose to save us, and we didn't do a single thing to earn it. This is what makes salvation grace. It has to be grace, because he didn't have to save us. If anything, as is written here, we all deserve to go to hell. We couldn't have done a single thing to earn it. It was totally his choice alone to save you. You weren't even concerned for being saved. <laughs> it wasn't even a thought in your mind. It was his choice. If it's his choice, it's his gift, his grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it, ever. So let's go to number three now. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. Type three is empowering grace. This is the grace given from the Holy Spirit to believers in the form of spiritual gifts, miracles, 
strength and energy to accomplish any work for God. So if you go in this in the right order, you've got common grace that you experienced while you were an unbeliever and that you're still experiencing now. You received saving grace through your faith. Now you're saved. Now you get empowering grace. This is all the stuff that comes after you're saved that allows you to do anything of value. And this is where it gets tricky for believers because it's very easy once you're saved to think that you're somehow higher and that, okay, now that I'm saved, I'm more accountable, which is true. But then we start to think, I have a responsibility that's so great to do all of these things that I have to try my absolute hardest and it's all on me. My works are really important. And if that continues, you drift into what Paul talks about in Galatians where he says that having begun in the spirit, are you so foolish to think that you're perfected by the flesh? His point is, if you started this whole walk of being saved, by the power of the spirit and the grace of God, and you didn't do a single thing to deserve it or earn it. What makes you think your fleshly efforts alone is what's going to bring you to maturity or perfection or actually make you a better person from start to end. It is only and always the grace of God that allows you or empowers you to do anything. You depend as much on the grace of God to be obedient to him today as you did when you took the first step of obedience to be saved. You have to think that way. As desperate as you were when you cried out to God for the first time to save you, that's as desperate as we truly are every single day that we wake up. And we have to think that way. Otherwise, we start to drift into this idea that we're perfected by the flesh, which is what Paul rebuked in Galatians. So it's a, it's a dangerous game if we don't stay reminded of this empowering grace. Again, it's the grace given from the Holy Spirit to believers in the form of spiritual gifts, miracles, strength, and energy to accomplish any work for God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll actually start... Uh, no, verse 10 is fine. Yeah, we'll start in verse 10. Ah, no, we got to start in verse 9. <laughs> this is too good. Okay. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So pause there. He's talking about saving grace right now. That verse is saving grace. He's saying, I am not worthy to be what I am because I persecuted Christians, I persecuted believers. Then God saves him. So verse nine is Paul's way of saying, God saved me by his grace and put me in a position I didn't deserve, I wasn't worthy of. Then you get to verse 10. This is where he talks about empowering grace, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Here's the effect. I labored more abundantly than they all. So he's saying, I worked harder than anyone to follow Jesus. This is one of the few places where you see Paul talking about himself seemingly in a positive light. Then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So you go down the line, saving grace, he gets saved. 
Now that he has grace, he says he worked harder to follow Jesus than anyone and finishes by saying, but the, the ability to work that hard came from the grace of God anyway. So I can't take credit for it. The fact that you can be obedient at all is the grace of God. That's why you depend as much on him for every day as you did when you first got saved. It makes sense to us when we think about, you know, the fact that we have air in our lungs and a beating heart. We can recognize that easily as the grace of God. The fact that you can lift a finger is the grace of God. So how much more do we think then, or how much more foolish would it be then for us to think that we can be obedient on our own as though it's totally on our power? That's never the case. It's always the grace of God. Yeah. Did you have a question or comment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> grace of God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Paul talking about empowering grace. It's the grace of God that empowered me to work this hard. So he, he, he couldn't take credit for it, so neither can you. And I'm sure Paul worked harder than you are right now. <laughs> so if he couldn't take credit for it, then we can't either. Yeah. Yeah. Is the grace of God the first sign that he's trying to get your attention? That's the question, right? Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, it starts with common grace, right? That's the first thing that God offers unbelievers. You're in creation that you didn't earn. You didn't work for it. He's still letting you eat food and drink water. That's grace. That's the creation that reveals the handiwork and the glory of God, right? That's, that's meant to be a way that he gets our attention. So yes. Yeah. So we'll go down the list here. Any way in which you are vitalized, influenced, or empowered by God is a show of his grace. Strong's concordance, which is a Greek concordance, expands the definition of grace in this way. It's the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. That's why Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Yeah. The divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. In that frame of mind, Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I can only live the life I'm living because God is letting me live it by his grace. You even, <laughs> this is really funny. You even need the grace of God to sin. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but I'll explain myself, okay? So the fact that you exist, remember, is the grace of God. The fact that you can move, live, breathe, take action is the grace of God. So to take a body God gave you by his grace and use it for sin is an abuse of his grace because you wouldn't survive without his grace. So every day that you wake up is God giving you more life. And the more you use that life for sin, the more you're abusing his grace. Now that you become a believer, you're saved by his grace. You're given the spirit and with the spirit comes the power to be obedient. That's why you need to be saved to be obedient. Now that you're saved, every step of obedience to the gospel and to the word that you take is empowered by the grace of God. We have to remember that. 
So the bullet points down the list, these are just examples. We won't read all these scriptures, but at least off the page. Spiritual gifts or miracles are a grace of God. Romans 12, 6 says, having grace or gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us, let us use them. It's talking about spiritual gifts there. So any gift that you have that allows you to be of Christ-like influence on others is the grace of God. Faith is a grace of God. Romans 12, 3 says, having uh, grace, or I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Who gave you faith? God. God dealt it to you. You didn't earn it. Wisdom and or leadership ability is a grace of God. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10 says, by the grace of God, he's a wise master builder. And he says that he laid a foundation. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. This is Paul describing his work as a leader in the church. He says he does it by the grace of God. Next, ability to minister the gospel at all is a grace of God. Romans 12, uh, we can, yeah, Romans 12, 3, again, you can pull up on the screen. Romans 12, 3, he says, I say through the grace of, through the grace given to me. So he's saying, I, I'm only able to even say this because of the grace of God. If I didn't have grace, I wouldn't have the information, let alone the ability to, to reveal it, to say it, right? Next is Romans 15, verses 15 through 16. This is a good one too. Romans 15, verses 15 through 16. Get that one up. That'd be great. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. Next verse. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. He's only able to be a minister and a minister of the gospel because of the grace given to him. Next one is understanding speech and knowledge are a grace of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5, talks about not coming short in any gift, and then also says that we're equipped with all utterance and all knowledge. Utterance is about what you know how to speak. Knowledge is about what you know to speak and that that is a grace of God. Yeah. Enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge is what it says. Look at the previous verses. Look at starting verse four. What does verse four say? If you could pull that on the screen. Yeah. For the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, then into verse five. That you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. That's grace, that you can have utterance or knowledge. Last one, as an example here. The ability, this is a big one, the ability to repent and obey God is itself a grace of God. Look at Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31 is a really good one. There's a couple verses that read like this, but 5.31 in particular of Acts says, him God has exalted to his right hand, this is talking about Jesus, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel 
and forgiveness of sins. If repentance is given, it is a grace. When John chapter 16, Jesus said that the first thing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was going to do is convict the world of sin. That means basically make you feel guilty for your sins and make you want to turn away from it. That's what that means. He's saying that only happens to you because the Holy Spirit moves upon your life to make that happen. Which proves we had no concern to repent until the Holy Spirit came into our lives. We had no interest in it. It is because of the grace of God that you can repent at all. Which makes salvation that much more remarkable. Because number one, God didn't have to save you. Number two, you weren't even doing, any, doing anything to want to be saved. So not only did he give you salvation, but he gave you the means and the ability to even take the first step. <laughs> it's like, we didn't do a thing. <laughs> it was all him, right? That's like, oh gosh. That's like, if you imagine... You know, I think about this with my daughter. She's uh, a year and a half now, and she's learning a lot of things about obedience now. <laughs> and a lot of things about discipline for disobedience. Now, we don't even, like, I, I can't even really fathom this because we're not God, so we don't know totally how it works. But this, what we're talking about here, would be like if I told my daughter something was wrong and said, do this instead. But in order for her to do it, I had to give her the ability to do it. So then it almost seems like it's not even her obedience. It's like it's mine through her, right? So it's like, is she, can she even take credit for that? No, <laughs> and that's the whole point. She can't, and we can't, because you, you can't be obedient without the grace of God. So our job is actually not to, ha to have the power to obey. That comes from God. Your job, according to Jesus, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Your job is to listen to what the word says and want, as a believer, to do what it says. The power to walk it out comes from God. Your job is to listen. That's what Jesus said. Listen and obey, but the obedience or the power to obey comes from him. Last one is a Romans 1 verse 5 on that topic of repentance and obedience. You'll uh, find it interesting, I've learned this recently, that I'm sure you guys have been here before, where there's a certain area of obedience or a certain thing that you want to be able to do, but no matter how hard you try, it seems like you just can't. Now, I'm not talking about the type of things that you can do. That's different. Those types of obedience, you already have the power to do it. It's already supplied to you, and it's just stubbornness that gets in the way. But what I'm talking about is that the... the layers of obedience where it gets deeper and deeper to where you want to be able to do this thing for God, but you can't. Like we've been talking about the past few weeks, hearing the spirit, right? We're wanting to be able to hear what the spirit says so we can obey what the spirit's saying. If you don't hear the spirit, you can't obey the spirit. And who supplies the ability or the ears to hear what the spirit's saying? God, there's grace. So it's up to God Assuming you're 
you know, doing your best to walk in the word. It's up to him to decide when it's the right time to give you that ability to obey. Now the question comes up, well, why wouldn't he just give us that total ability right now? Imagine if you in your current character were given all the power that Jesus had all at once. Yeah, you'd be overwhelmed for one. Number two, you wouldn't know how to use it. Number three, you'd probably do more harm than good. Right? God makes it simple because we're simple-minded creatures. He gives you what you need right now. He gives you what you are meant to focus on right now. Once you master that, you move on to the next thing. So that's why you're only going to strain yourself and tire yourself all out, burden yourself, if you try to be obedient in everything all at once. The ability to obey comes from God. And he gives you the ability that you can handle for right now. With what you need to focus on. So pick one thing, get good at it, and then pray for the next thing. That's how you grow. It's never going to happen all at once. And that's why we have to trust God's timing. You depend on him for obedience itself. This is amazing. You... You can't obey something unless he gives you the power to, it, to do it. So just, what do you have the power to obey right now? Do that. And then he'll give you more. Because if you're faithful with what is least, you'll be entrusted with much. Exactly. Look at Romans 1 verse 5. It says, Through him, that's through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. You can only walk in obedience because he gave you grace. It's that simple. Okay. Section three. Any questions so far? So, as believers, here's a benefit of empowering grace. This is the, the really comforting part of this. Empowering grace is what allows imperfect people to do anything for God. We are often sloppy and make mistakes, but God gets everything done anyway. Isn't that amazing? Imagine how frustrated we get, like especially if you're any kind of leader, any kind of manager or just, just try, try managing people in any respect. You find that there's always a lot of mistakes. There's always a lot of sloppiness, you know. And if you have this goal, something you want to accomplish through a team of people, and you have to deal with all those, all those people's imperfections, including your own, try to, get a, a, try to accomplish a goal with, let's say, you and five people. It's tough. It's difficult. And imagine God trying to accomplish a goal that he predicted from beginning to the end using like 100 billion people. <laughs> imagine managing five is a struggle. You know, if you're a parent and you've had any number of kids, managing children is tough because you're dealing with imperfections. God has has had since the beginning of, you know, roughly, if we call it 6,000 years ago, since Adam and Eve were created, uh, 
I think based on genetics, they say there's been around 110 billion people that have existed on the planet from beginning until now that have been born and died. God has so 110 billion children, plus the ones that are being born and will be born until the end, that he's had to manage through their imperfections and sloppiness to get the job done. It's amazing. The wisdom and the power of God in that is unfathomable. And it shows us his power. So, you can rest. This is the next bullet point. You can rest knowing that no matter how obedient you are or not, God will always accomplish everything he needs to. His will is always done. Of course, you should still want to be obedient, but your, this is the best part. <laughs> I love this. Your obedience is not any greater advantage to God. <laughs> okay, go to Job. Job chapter, yeah. <laughs> Job chapter 35. So this is uh, Elihu, who's a, a young man that's rebuking Job for all of his complaining, basically. And he actually teaches this. This is one of the parts of Job that's really, really good and really humbling. Job chapter 35. Job is right before Psalms. <laughs> I could feel the investigation. Job. <laughs> Job. <laughs> you should read Job more, evidently. Job chapter 35, in oh, verse 5. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Pause there. He's talking about your sin first. In other words... No matter how much you sin, it's not going to make God worry. There is nothing you can do that'll make God lose his marbles. Nothing. Even with 110 billion children that are all sinning a lot, <laughs> it doesn't affect him. He's not worried about it. Of course, it grieves the spirit, scripture says. But God hasn't lost his mind. He's not at wit's end. He's not given up on creation. There's nothing you accomplish against him. This is also a reference to the plan of God. It doesn't matter how much a person sins. It doesn't matter if you're the devil himself. You can't be a disadvantage to God by sinning. He's that powerful. Then he talks about our righteousness. This is the really humbling part. Verse 7, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Remember, when you obey, who gives you the ability to obey? God. So if you're righteous, what are you giving to him? What he gave you first? Yeah, well, yeah, it can be anything. Love, it can be, if you love a person, who gave you that love? Oh, God did. So if you're giving him back something he gave you, you're only giving him something he's always already had. So you add nothing to God. 
by being obedient? Nothing. Then he says, so if you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man. This is where it brings it down to earth. You being good or evil affects people. Your wickedness will affect people as you, your righteousness will affect people. That's his point. It's no advantage or disadvantage to God's plan to be obedient or not. What you're accountable for and what God sees is the harm you did to others or not. That's how we're judged. A, a sin against God doesn't mean a sin that hurt God's feelings as though he is human because he's not. Sinning against God simply means sinning against creation and how that is an offense to his standard of righteousness. But your choices affect your life and the lives of others. It's not going to change God's plan. Or I should say it's not going to thwart it. You're never going to make the plan of God fail. You can certainly hurt yourself and others, but you're not going to stop God. Nor are you any greater advantage. So I'll read uh, the sentence in, that I wrote in here first. Again, you should still want to be obedient, and I'll explain why. But your obedience is not any greater advantage to God. Your obedience helps you, and it helps others, but it doesn't help God. In other words, God doesn't need you to be obedient in order for his plans to be accomplished. God doesn't need a single thing from you. Go to Acts chapter 17 in verse 25. Uh, 24. we got to start in 24. <laughs> I don't know why I do this after I wrote the thing. Why don't I just put the previous verse in there first? Verse 24 of Acts 17 says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God doesn't need a single thing from you. And it even goes as far as to say he's not even worshipped by you. What that means, the way that Jesus said this, is that if we should be silent, even the rocks would cry out, right? In other words, God is not lacking worship if you're silent. He'll get it from everything else. God does not need you to obey him or worship him to receive the glory that he deserves. He gets it just from by nature of who he is. You cannot be in the presence of God and not worship him. So anything that's in creation is worshiping and glorifying God. So if you are left out of that, he's not lacking anything. He doesn't need it from you. Doesn't need a single thing. And it says he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So again, your actions, the breath in your lungs, anything you do to be obedient, he gave you that faculty. He gave you that ability. So if it's given to you, you're just giving back what he gave you. That's all it is. next bullet point we may feel bad about our failures 
And that's not a bad thing. It's, it's okay to feel bad about your failures. But it's comforting to know that even when we fail or only partially succeed, God always finishes the job. And if it wasn't through you, he'll use someone else. So we don't have to worry about that. Empowering grace is what makes the plan of God possible in a fallen world. Because, of course, he has to use imperfect people. God has anticipated the choices and consequences of every creature in heaven and earth. So no, this is not even just the 110 billion humans. This is the probably billions and trillions of angels and now demons and everything else that exists somewhere else in the universe that I know nothing about. Maybe you do. All of creation, he's anticipated the choices and consequences of every creature in heaven and earth. He worked every single one of your choices, good and bad, into his plan from the beginning. So while you are growing through your failures, your life will improve, as will the lives of others you influence. But the plan of God is always succeeding. And this is the grace of God at work. Remember how Psalms 139 says that he understands your thought afar off. We only become conscious of our thoughts as soon as they enter our minds. But God knows the thoughts you're going to think long before they ever get to your mind. And he knew every single choice you were going to make. So once we get to the end of time and all creation is folded up and he remakes everything, like think about this. He, he worked every single one of your choices, good and bad, into that plan to lead to that end. So there's, there's absolutely nothing you do or say that God missed. He doesn't make mistakes. And if he didn't miss a single thing, then the plan will succeed. Because he's worked it all into his plan. This is just another way of emphasizing that your, your obedience is of no greater advantage to him. Because he already, he already planned it out. He already worked it out. The game is already set. He already knows how the pieces are going to move. He already knows the choice you're going to make. He can't lose. That's the point. He can't lose. Now, this last part here. You will still be held accountable and judged by God for your choices, both good and bad. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Yes. <laughs> we'll finish on an encouraging note, I promise. But I have to like, we got to make you feel really bad first. And then, then the encouraging part will feel more encouraging, right? <laughs> Second Corinthians five, starting in verse nine. So Paul says, therefore we make it our aim. So it's a, it should be a goal of ours. He's saying whether present or absent to be well-pleasing to God. So yeah, you, you should want to please God. You should want to be obedient for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So your actions will have consequences in eternity. But it's really important to remember, this is so key. God does not judge anyone on the basis of how he personally felt emotionally about their sins. Because that would assume that you offended him with your sin. Or you made him worried. Thank you. Or you somehow, like I was saying earlier, caused him to lose his marbles and made him really mad at you. That's not, that's not what hell is. That's not the judgment of God. The reason why he's so perfect in the way he judges is because he gives you exactly what your actions deserved based on what Jeremiah calls the fruit of your doings. That means the way that your choices affected his creation, those consequences is what he bases his judgment of you on. So it's never based on his feelings or emotions. It's always based on the fact of the matter of what your choices produced, good or bad. There's no emotional influence there. Which leads us back to what I started with earlier, which is that there's no way you're at any advantage or disadvantage to God with your choices. What this is about is how your choices affect creation, which he made. The encouraging part is that this makes your failures way easier to get over. Because God always wins. Not only in his plan for all of creation, but his plan for your life too. Because the Bible says that God has fashioned every single one of your days, or he has fashioned your heart individually and has pre-appointed for you every single day of your life. So there, there's, no, there's no choice you make that thwarts his plan for your life either. Now, you will find out through your choices and the consequences of those choices, the outcomes of those choices, what had to happen to correct you or to teach you, right? Because when you make bad choices, and the consequences of those choices cause bad things to happen in your life. You learn from those bad things. You feel bad about it. You repent. You change your ways. That's just an example of one way that God takes your choices and uses them to get you back on the right path. But in terms of his plan, what he will do with your life, that's predetermined. And there's no way you can thwart that. As I've applied, the, applied this to my own personal life with just as much as I've wanted to grow in, you know, things like hearing the Spirit's voice or growing in obedience in certain areas, I remind myself of this a lot. And one thing I actually say to myself quite often is that I'm exactly where I need to be. If I wasn't, then that would be something that God missed <laughs> in his plan, right? And he didn't miss a thing. So I'm exactly where I need to be all the time. Even if I'm being disobedient, 
I'm where I need to be for God to accomplish his plan through me. And he would prefer that I be obedient because it's going to be, it's going to end up better for me and for others around me if I'm obedient. But if I'm not, his will is still done. This is going to remove a huge chunk of worry when it comes to your relationship with God, because God's not disadvantaged. He's not losing. He's winning all the time. So you, at this point, you can just basically throw out of your mind any thought you've ever had up to this point that somehow you've made it harder for God. <laughs> it's just, and sometimes this happens when, like, when we go pray for somebody who's sick, right? And we're like, man, I wish I had greater faith to see this person healed. God's not up in, up in heaven like, man, I wish you had more faith because now I can't do what I want to do. It's your fault, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> that's not how he's thinking right? He knew from the beginning of time that you would take that action and that what you wanted to happen didn't happen or wouldn't happen. He knew that. He anticipated that. And he worked that into his plan. And his plan for the person's life you are praying for is still going to be done too. So we don't have to worry about any of this anymore. No more worry in that way. what your obedience will affect chiefly, I would say even more than improving the lives of others in your life practically. Your obedience is also about your intimacy with God. Your relationship with God will be deeper. It'll be closer. It'll be better. The more obedient you are to him. Of course, choosing, choosing to accept the gospel and be saved in that way also is better for you eternally because you'll be in heaven rather than hell, which is awesome. <laughs> but in terms of the life that you live now, already saved, this makes your choices entirely about your closeness with God, your relationship with God, which is what we talked about last week, right? If your choices were all about somehow making the plan of God succeed, that is a huge burden that we would never be able to bear. But if your obedience is about you being closer to God and more loving to his creation. That makes it so simple because now all that matters is whether I'm walking with God or not. Whether I have a relationship with him that's as intimate and as, as deep as he desires for me. That's what the focus is now. Otherwise we get so wrapped up in how our failures somehow derailed everything. Always about your relationship. That's what matters. Yeah. How does this uh, minister to people that have had, like, a lot of things happen, what they think of as to them? In other words, like, a person that was abandoned by their parents when they were young just kind of dropped off on this farm somewhere, or the person that's dealing with um, some genetic thing they were born with, etc. So... You know, we make choices, but what about people that feel like choices have been made for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, this goes back to Job 35, where Elihu says that your wickedness affects people and, and yourself, of course, because you're a person. The choices that determine what God must allow in creation is not just your choices. It's also the choices of others. 
what people choose to do to you or what you choose to do to others is all included in what God had to work into his plan. Because you're not the only human on the planet, right? There's a lot of other people. And there's the choices of angels and demons. Particularly demons, because demons are walking in rebellion. Angels are in submission. So you don't have to worry about angels making a bad choice. Because if they do, they're going to be cast out. Fallen angels or demons are making choices of disobedience. And so starting with that, here's what this boils down to. Or it starts with a question. What things in life are, are you a victim to? I know it's a kind of a negative word, but I'm using that for a reason. What things are we a victim to? Scripture is clear. Like there's so many proverbs about this. That a person who chooses righteousness, it says, will be blessed. Generally speaking means you will have a better life if you're obedient to God. Because the fruit of righteousness and the effect of righteousness is peace. Isaiah, I think it's 35, says. So your life is going to be better if you choose righteousness. That's a generality. Second to that is choices that either demons or other people make that you couldn't control that God either allows to affect you or not. You can start with, if you're choosing righteousness, your life is going to be better overall. But there are certain times when there will be negative things that God has to let happen, not because we did something necessarily that made us deserve it, but simply because it had to happen for the sake of other situations and people that we're not necessarily aware of. So an example of this would be the, well, I mean, any person that under, underwent hardships in scripture. I mean, if we use Job as an example, we are reading scripture out of the book of Job that has affected every single person who knew Job's story after he went through that. And it's only because Job went through that that we're able to benefit from it now. Take the prophets. Jeremiah was writing prophecies, First Peter says, about all the prophets, that they wrote things that were of no benefit to them in their generation, but only were of concern to the people that would arise after them, which is us. We benefit from them now. And they had to suffer unimaginable turmoil for preaching that was of zero benefit to them. So God had to let them go through that to write scriptures that were going to be ultimately for not just their generation, but generations after them. The conclusion of this is that the world is way bigger than just you and your individual life, right? So if the world is bigger than you, you can know that if God has to let something happen to you in his will that seems negative, there is always a reason that concerns more than you. If it was just about you, then most of these things that happen to us would be only negative. But because of all the tragedies that have turned into good and a blessing for multitudes of people around or after them, 
this tells you that, again, the world is bigger than you. So when we go down to specifics like somebody born with a gen genetic disease or somebody who was born without parents and they were dropped off on a farm or whatever, use those examples. We're not fully aware of all the reasons, but we can know for certain that there is always something that has to happen that God knows about that can only happen through certain events such as that. Knowing God has to let people make their own choices. God has to let people make bad choices because they have a free will. And God uses the outcomes of those choices to accomplish an ultimate good. And we don't have to know every single detail of that because only God needs to know that. It would be too overwhelming if we did. So to, answer, to finally answer the question I started with, which is like, what are we a victim to? You are only victim to either your bad choices or the occasional time when in the will of God, God has to let something negative happen for reasons that you might not understand, but that are for ultimately your good and the good of others in the end. You're not a victim to the devil. You're not even really a victim to other people's choices because only reason people or the devil or demons can make those choices is because God let them. So you're only, you're only surrendered to the choices you make and to what God's will allows. That's it. The devil's not your problem, nor are other people. And so the best we can do is trust and do our best to be obedient. That's all we can do. The rest is up to God. So that would be my answer to that. It was longer, but there's a, there's, if you want details, so this just reminds me of this. So the one book I have on the shelf back there is called The Mystery of His Will. In that book, I go into detail on this and I give example after example in the Old Testament where God took really terrible people and used their really terrible choices to accomplish his plan, even though it was painful for the righteous for a period of time. And I, I pull up those examples and then kind of explain how it ended up as good in the end. And that kind of gives you a bird's eye view picture of how God uses other people's choices that are bad to ultimately bring about uh, ultimate good. So that, that's just a resource if you guys are interested in that. But what's that? One more example of out of the book. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of them would be, oh, there's so many. One of them would be, I think probably my favorite, is there's this lineage of kings. It's in uh, Second Kings, I believe. And there's basically these, these three kings, I don't recall their names, but there's these three kings that only reigned for a few years and then were assassinated. And then the guy that assassinated them became king and then that guy was assassinated. And it's like, it's this really terrible situation that's just like, this guy's a really bad guy, but somehow he becomes king, somebody else kills him and then he becomes king and then he gets killed and it just kind of goes down the line like that. And it's really just kind of a bad situation. So when you read it, what's so funny about this is it started out by God telling Ahab. It starts with Ahab. God told Ahab, because of your sins, I'm going to punish your house and your line will be cut off and none of your sons will inherit the throne. 
that's the prophecy. You read into the next chapter, what happens is God raises up Jehu, and Jehu goes and kills Ahab, or no, excuse me, Jezebel, and all of Ahab's descendants, or the, the male descendants, who are all wicked people. Then Jehu becomes king, and then he turns wicked and dies. Then Jehu's son takes the throne, and the wickedness continues to grow, and God prophesies against, I believe it's Jehu's son, that I'm going to raise up, I think it says, adversity against your house, and you're going to die. Then this other guy comes up, kills Jehu's son, takes the throne. He reigns for a handful of years. Then God prophesies over him, the same thing that I did, I did, he says, to your father, I will do to you. This other king comes up and kills him, then he takes the throne. So when you, when you read up to that point, it feels like God is the one sending these people, because that's what he says, I have sent them, to remove these kings for their wickedness. Then you get to the end of that story, and it's with, I believe, it's this king called Baasha, I believe. And God says, I am going to punish every one of these kings that assassinated their successor for the wickedness of committing murder. Even though God was the one who sent them, the explanation is that he used the wicked intent of a wicked man to accomplish what he needed to happen, but still made the wicked man accountable for his wickedness. Right. So all these kings had to die. God simply used wicked people as the instrument to make it happen. So God didn't create the wickedness. He just used the wickedness that was already there in other people, right? So in a modern context, if we apply that story, that would be any time where there's a certain judgment, like let's say with you can use Ananias and Sapphira or King Herod as an example. Um, actually, an even better one would be, uh, yeah, Pharaoh in the Old Testament, where all the firstborn of Egypt were going to die, and God sent what some people call the angel of death, but it's the destroyer, Paul calls it, into Egypt, and it kills all the firstborn. Was God the one killing the firstborn? No. But God allowed this basically a demon to do the killing to accomplish a judgment God needed to happen. But God didn't, he didn't, he wasn't the death itself, but he had to let it happen. Modern times, it just simply means anytime a person has to experience a consequence for their sin in order to ultimately be corrected. Sometimes God has to use other people's wicked intentions as a means of bringing about the calamity that they need in order to repent. That's how it works. God isn't causing the calamity, but he, he is allowing it to happen because it's just simply what a person might need at that time. And you see this all the time when, uh, when somebody makes a lot of bad choices and they're not repenting. One example is in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's a man who's living in sexual immorality, he's not repenting. And God actually says, you know, remove him from the church and deliver him over to Satan. 
for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit will be saved in the day of judgment. So that's God's way of saying, I have to let the devil cause a lot of harm to this person so that he'll end up repenting. God's not causing the harm, but he has to let it happen for reasons that the guy in the moment might not understand, but that God does. So that's how the will of God works when it comes to good and evil. He doesn't cause evil, but he uses it to accomplish things that need to happen. Um, so, yeah, that, but the example of the, the, the lineage of the kings um, is one example that's in that book. Um, yeah, so it's, it's good good resource. Does that... Is there any more questions? I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Praying that is for reminding you. Yeah, praying praying that is about reminding you of that fact and it's about making you want to do his will. You're you're in his will anyway, but you wanting to be is about your humility, your worship to him, your obedience to him from your heart, right? Praying uh, your will be done or thy will be done, right? Like his will is always done, but you're praying that to be reminded of it ultimately because that's an important thing to be reminded of on a continual basis. Pray, yeah, pray that you grow in obedience. Yeah, grow in obedience. Um, Jesus did say to pray, you know, thy will be done, but he was saying it, like if you actually read it, what it says is, you know, your will be done. I mean, the word be isn't even in there. He just says your will done on earth as it is in heaven is what it reads in Greek. So what he's actually saying is he's telling you to remind yourself that God's will is done in earth just like it's done in heaven. And that's a, the point of worship that Jesus tells us to direct to God. So. The point is the reminder, not like you have to pray that for it to happen because it always does. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions? Yeah. This really answered how we tend to get in the area where we're going to help God right. by action. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that was mentioned that I'm, still spinning about a bit is he grants repentance. And as a believer, you may be trapped in a way of thinking that you haven't been able to lay aside, but you aren't ready to do that. You aren't ready to repent to that. You were saying you could, yeah, you could, you, you could say it that way, but it's not like you're not ready. I wouldn't say it that way. It's more like, you simply can't, yet you wouldn't be able to the way that God needs you to with the current understanding that you have. So one example of this would be, like let's say there's a certain sin where a person really feels like they need to change certain actions in order to repent or for their mind to be changed and renewed as a result. But God knows that it's really not about them focusing on the action. It's about them learning something in the word, or there's a point of understanding they need to come to in order for their actions to actually be effective. Right? So one example might be, let's say you've got a person struggling with lust and 
there's a lot of habits involved with that that they're really trying to break but it's not working because it's focusing on the action is futile for them until they come to the point of understanding in the word about let's say their identity in Christ or the grace of God or whatever that will then allow them to be able to change their actions so it's not that the person isn't ready it's more that there's just certain things that have to happen in order for them to be able to um, and that that would be how I'd answer that but when you apply it to the just the general idea of God granting repentance it simply means that God is in charge of the timing for when he grants the spirit to an unbeliever to for them to become a believer and that decision of his is always based on the First, Jesus said the soil of their heart, the condition of their heart, and then their willingness to hear. So there are certain things that God waits for, yes, but when it comes to the repentance itself, that's given when he knows that they're able to receive it. Otherwise, it falls on deaf ears, and it doesn't produce fruit. Does that answer the question? Yeah, if you have yeah, more thoughts or more to add, you can... So the question is, does it grow a person's patience to kind of struggle through something until they learn what they actually need to do, even though they might be doing something that's futile at first? Yeah. Yeah, so how he, yeah a way that he teaches you patience. Okay. Teaches you patience through that. So... Anytime we have to wrestle through something, it does teach us patience. It does. Um, but I don't even know if I, can, if I can even answer that authoritatively because God teaches us all kinds of things through things that we experience. And if he was going to teach us patience and that's what he wants to do, great. If not, and it's something else, also great. Um, I would say the, the, the kind of patience that comes through that, though, is a person's consistency to keep trying shows honor to God, no matter what, right? If they keep going, they keep trying, and they eventually get there, that does prove their desire for obedience. So that's a good thing, and that, that is a show of patience. But it doesn't happen that way for everyone. You know, some people it's faster or slower, and it just all depends on their, their understanding, where they're at in life. And we just have to trust God with each individual. But, so, yeah. Yeah. Dependence on God for every single thing. Yeah. 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 I would, this whole idea is meant to be simple. I don't want to overcomplicate it. And the simplicity in it is basically what Jolene just said, that you need the grace of God for everything. And if you simply trust he has you where you need to be, focus on what he has in front of you, and just trust with the rest, you will have your sanity. Because <laughs> the plan of God will never fail. And you don't have to worry about that. Any last questions?
comments.